Secondary Victim Claims. You're listening to The Civil Lawcast, a regular series on issues of interest and developments in civil law, brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello, and welcome to this edition of Civil Lawcast. I'm Emily Formby. And I'm Scarlett Milligan. And we're from 39 Essex Chambers. So how are you, Scarlett? I'm well, thank you, Emily. I'm excited to be on Civil Lawcast for the first time. Absolutely, but not the last, I'm sure, not the last. I'm sure. (laughs) On this rainy afternoon, hopefully we can bring a bit of cheer and joy. Mind you, by the time people are listening to it, if anyone does listen to it, by the time they're listening to it, hopefully the sun will have come back out. Hopefully springtime will be with us. Yeah, absolutely. Daffodils, snowdrops the lot. Good. Okay. Well, so um, that gives you a hint to the fact that we're recording this in early March. (laughs) And um, we're in this episode going to be looking at the Court of Appeal judgment in Paul and Wolverhampton, which in fact is one of three conjoined appeals that were heard in December 2021, looking at uh, the continually vexed question of secondary victim claims from specifically a civil negligence context. Um, you may recall, uh, loyal listeners, that we had a 39 Essex Chambers webinar, in fact, in June 2020, when the judgment of uh, Mr Justice Chamberlain in the Pool case um, hard on its own was first handed down. That was a first appeal. Uh, that um, webinar is available on our on the archives of our website. It's a bit of a lockdown classic. We've all got long hair and um, home clothes and so on and so forth. But that is really talking about the first decision. And now we're going to look at what happened next, as all good sequels are. Uh, we're looking at three cases. So Paul, having gone from Mr Justice Chamberlain to the Court of Appeal, the case of Polmere, and the case of Purchase. Uh, Polmere was a leapfrog appeal and Purchase was another appeal. So all of the cases were put together to deal with clinical negligence and secondary victims in one wrapper. Um, It might also be worth saying at this point that um, all the cases that we refer to, um, their full names and citations we will add to our website uh, so that um, when the public When the podcast episode is published, you can, if you wish, uh, also follow the case law um, itself. So that's the outline of what we're going to talk about. Um, First things first, um, Scarlett, do you want to tell us um, exactly what primary and indeed secondary victims are? Primary victims are those who sustain physical or psychiatric injury as a direct result of a defendant's actions. By contrast, secondary victims are those who sustain psychiatric injury as a result of either witnessing or fearing the death or serious harm of their loved ones. Now, that is, of course, subject to some policy restrictions that we'll come on to discuss. But that's it in a nutshell. Now, today, as as you've said, Emily, we're, we're only looking at secondary victim claims, but it's very important to, to bear the distinction in mind because it comes into the, the reasoning in Paul. So as you say, Scarlett, we're talking about secondary victims today. And there's been a lot of case law about secondary victims over the years. But this is really the first um, serious look by the higher courts of secondary victims within the clinical negligence um, context in particular. So as always, I think that's, it's always helpful to start by understanding and looking at the facts of the case, uh, not least because when we dive into the judgments, the um, particular circumstances are contrasted as different examples of, of how these claims can arise. And, and indeed, um, it's always the case that if you try and think about things in the abstract, you pretty soon find that real life examples um, 
you know, crop up with a far stranger set of circumstances than you could have hypothetically thought of. Um, so these are three cases. Um, and the second important thing to remember is they're not fully heard. They've all come from strikeout applications as to whether or not there's a claim that can be made. And so they're based on assumed facts. So if they ever do get heard or go back to first instance, what we decide, um, what we've what we are looking at now may not end up being the final facts, but they are agreed facts for the purposes of this exercise. Um, and the third thing to obviously remember is um, we're always dealing with terrible human tragedy um, in all these cases. Um, they are come about by loved ones dying and that death being witnessed um, by other loved ones. And it's easy when we, we sit here in a way and bandy around names to forget the human suffering that lies behind all these claims. Um, and so let's start our, our case by a little bit of reflection on uh, what the circumstances of those cases were. Those three cases, Emily, had three common denominators. They all involved deaths. They all involved alleged clinical negligence. And they all have, to differing degrees, a gap in time between the alleged negligence and the death. So why don't we start with Mr. Paul, the headline case, uh, Mr. Paul was treated for coronary symptoms in November 2012, and he suffered a sudden heart attack some 14 months later in the presence of his daughters. Uh, his daughters were the, the secondary victim claimants, and they alleged that there was a failure to perform a coronary angiography during those November 2012 investigations. But beyond that, there were no further symptoms or any indications that Mr. Paul was unwell. His heart attack in January 2014 was, was very sudden. Miss Palmier was a seven-year-old girl. She attended her GP complaining of episodes where she was unable to breathe. She was referred to a paediatrician who concluded in January 2015 that there was no abnormality with her cardiac rhythm and that her symptoms were most likely caused by overexertion. When her symptoms didn't improve, she was re-referred to a paediatrician, but unfortunately she, she died before she could attend that appointment. Her parents were the, the claimants in the Palmyre case and they saw her lying at school, receiving medical attention, ultimately receiving resuscitation. And in that case, the defendant admitted that it had been negligent and that her condition should have been diagnosed by the paediatrician in January 2015. It's worth saying at this point that unlike in Paul, the claimants, her parents, were present at the January 2015 appointment where her condition wasn't diagnosed and they were aware of her subsequent symptoms before her death in July 2015. So, of course, that is quite a different set of circumstances, isn't it? I mean, for Mr. Paul, um, although he had coronary symptoms, there was no knowledge by anyone that there was anything wrong in between November 2012 and, and his death. Um, and so there was a failure to have the assessment that might have shown there was an underlying problem. But he thought he was well, and his daughters obviously had no idea there was anything remiss at all. Uh, whereas with Esme Palmier, the parents, obviously she was only a little girl, had been with her at every medical appointment. And she had shown and indeed continued to show symptoms. Um, and, and obviously the ones that were quite distressing in terms of um, breathlessness and uh, sort of blue lips and fingertips between both them from the first time they went to the GP and indeed even after she'd been seen by the paediatrician such that they were seeking ongoing investigation. But 
they had been told that there was nothing significantly wrong, despite the fact that, that, that there had been a... There's a there's an obvious miss, so to speak, in terms of the admitted negligence in January uh, 2015. Okay, so those are quite different. Now, what about the third one, the Purchase case? Miss Purchase was a young woman. She visited her GP with sinusitis in January 2013 and then in March 2013. Her symptoms worsened and she visited an out-of-hours clinic in April 2013. She was accompanied there by her, her mum, who was the claimant in this case. And at the clinic, she was diagnosed with respiratory tract infection, oral thrush and depression, and she was discharged with medication. A few days later, she complained of heart palpitations. And indeed, the following day, her mum came home to find her in bed motionless. Her mum tried to resuscitate her. Very tragically, that caused blood and bodily fluids to, to spill out of Miss Purchase's mouth and nose, which, as one can imagine, was shocking for her mum. And ultimately, Miss Purchase died of extensive pneumonia. And it's her mum's case that, that should have been identified and treated days earlier when she was seen in that out-of-hours clinic uh, when she was already severely ill with pneumonia. Okay, so in that case, we've got an illness that is clearly developing over time. Um, and a, a worsening situation. And um, as you say, had got to the stage when she had um, a severe illness of pneumonia a few days before she died. And indeed, the unfolding of her condition or had the worsening of her condition was apparent to her and to her mum, who I think um, the day, the night, in fact, that she died, um, she lived on her own, but she was um, back in the, the family home because she was unwell. And Indeed, there'd been a suggestion. Her her, her mum had gone out with with another daughter that night, and and had not wanted to leave her alone because she was so concerned about her. But but at um, at her daughter's insistence, they went out, and so when they returned to the house, they found her um, ill. So there we have an illness that is becoming worse over time, but um, about which one had been falsely reassured before um, the tragic final outcome. Okay, so anyway, as we say, those are agreed facts of what um, our strikeout claims. Um, and in each of the cases, the claimants, the daughters um, and the parents and the parent mother have been diagnosed with psychiatric illness as a result of witnessing um, um, either the death or the um, unfolding of the death or the immediate aftermath of the death. Um, so those are important facts because those differences are relevant to the arguments um, that are then advanced by each of the claimants as to why um, their claim should be one that succeeds um, and, and the events that we've just described to you are such that a secondary victim claim would lie. So perhaps before we analyse why that might be, um, we should go back and have a look at the um, historical case law, as we say, in personal injury claims, uh, but nonetheless um, uh, applicable to clinical negligence claims, um, of which, uh, I mean, I think it's an interesting uh, area of law because it is complicated, it is difficult. And indeed, you can always tell that because in every instance, every judge very carefully sets out all of the rules um, and all of the previous case law when reaching their own conclusions, um, because there is no easy formula uh, to apply to say this is in and this is out. Um, but everybody comes back to, not the first in time, but to the case of Alcock, uh, which was one of the truly determinative cases in this area. The Master of the Roles in Paul discusses 
the five tests, which um, he now says should be called the five elements or, or the five, as they were des- described in Alcock, the five control mechanisms, which effectively provide the framework within which um, the secondary victim claim should be determined. Uh, so do you want to start off with uh, control mechanism or test number one? Yes. So that was described in Alcock as being a marital or parental relationship between the claimant and the primary victim. Subsequently, it's been somewhat expanded to to come to be known as a close tie of of love and affection. And the courts have said uh, a broader category of relationships can be included. Okay. And so um, just to be clear, what we're talking through now are uh, Lord Oliver's five uh, control mechanisms um, that he set out in in, in Alcock, um, and and that was what he'd pulled together as common features of the reported cases at the time. Um, if you're looking at the Alcock decision, it's page four one one F to H is where it's set out. So those five tests: first one, as you say, um, the relationship of of love and affection, or the marital or parental relationship. So the second test is about the injury. So the injury for which the damages were claimed arose from the sudden and unexpected shock to the plaintiff's nervous system. Now, it's important there to reflect that when we're talking about injury, we're talking about the injury sustained by the secondary victim. So the secondary victim is seeking damages for an injury which arose from the sudden and unexpected shock to their nervous system by witnessing whatever it was they witnessed. Number three is that the secondary victim has to have been either personally present at the scene of the accident. And of course, a lot of the early cases like Alcock refer to accidents because that's where this area of law has its genesis. Uh, But then in subsequent cases, the the courts have identified that it it may have been possible for a secondary victim to be in the immediate vicinity and witness the aftermath, if not the the actual accident. Yeah, and I think that one of the classic uh, tests for that is uh, one of the very earliest cases, McLaughlin and O'Brien, uh, poor old uh, Mrs. McLaughlin came across all of her family, her her, her husband and, and a number of children were all involved in an accident. She wasn't in the car at the time of the accident, but she came upon them in hospital about 20 minutes later when they were all still um, uh, battered and bruised and, and before they had been tidied up following the accident. Um, so, that's um, because it becomes important. That's a question of time, but it's time relating to the vicinity or aftermath of the incident in which the primary victim is involved. So Mrs. McLaughlin seeing the car crash, uh, that's the third test. The fourth one is that the injury arose from witnessing the death of or extreme danger to or injury and discomfort suffered by the primary victim. So again, that fourth test is the injury suffered, is the injury suffered by the secondary victim. And they suffer the psychiatric harm from witnessing the death or extreme danger or injury or discomfort to their primary victim. Now, I think actually at this point, it's important to note that while there are five tests, immediately after those five tests, Lord Oliver puts a bit of a gloss on this particular one. So what we'll do is we'll go through all five. So we'll go over to you, Scarlett, for number five, but then I'll come back and explain what actually it probably ought to be the sixth test, but the other, the um, the sort of gloss on this process of what you witness. Yes. So fifth, but certainly uh, not least, is <laughs> that there has to have been 
physical and temporal proximity between the secondary victim and the event. So put in, in, in layman's language, they have to be close in space and time to the negligence, the accident, the event. Now, as we come on to look at what the event is, is um, really what we're going to be looking at going forward, uh, what is meant by the event. But yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, so those five elements have um, come to be known after Alcock as the control mechanisms, uh, limiting the liability for the claim for psychiatric injury by a secondary victim. Uh, but as the master of the role says, he doesn't find that terminology uh, very helpful because you can't really describe Lord Oliver's five elements as something from which the claim ought to be deduced. He thinks that he will refer to them as Lord Oliver's five elements of the claim and indeed um, acknowledges that Lord Ackner, who was another judge at that time, uh, came up with similar points. But as I said, as well as those five tests or those five elements, another crucial point to remember is that Lord Oliver said, in additional to the legal proximity, um, which was the point about um, witnessing the death um, to the primary victim, um, reasonable foreseeability is necessary on the part of the defendant. So not only have you got legal proximity, but you have to have reasonable foreseeability on the part of the defendant, which is that in that combination of circumstances, um, those five elements, there's a real risk of injury of the type sustained by the particular secondary victim as a result of his or her concern for the primary victim. So that is... Um, basically referencing the requirement for there to be the Donoghue and Stevenson type neighbourhood concept of reasonable foreseeability. So the defendant uh, must have had, um, had in mind, or it must be reasonable to have in mind, that there's a real risk of injury to a, a loved one, the secondary victim, um, in those particular circumstances. Um, so that's, in a way, maintaining what I always describe as that feeling of any event um, has endless consequences. And, you know, if we if we looked at it in the broader sense, you'd have the, uh, you know, the butterfly flaps its wings here in El Nino and in Peru, uh, changes the temperature of the sea um, over there. But in legal terms for injury claims, uh, we don't have endless consequences. We have the barrier, so to speak, of reasonable foreseeability, the neighbourhood principle. Um, and that uh, final point uh, by the master of the roles is a reminder of that. And then in addition, I think the other thing that it's important to note at this stage is that Lord Oliver made it clear that you need to divorce the consideration of the primary victim um, from consideration of the secondary victim. So while, of course, the two claims are inevitably entwined, because if you didn't have the primary victim case, you wouldn't have a secondary victim in the first place, the two are not absolutely dependent. So the way that that was put in Paul is that um, Lord Oliver in Alcock made it clear that liability of the, for the secondary victim can arise even where there is in fact no primary victim. So for example, a parent may suffer injury, whether it's physical or psychiatric, as a result of witnessing a negligent act, which places his or her child in extreme jeopardy, but from which in fact, the child escaped unharmed. So that element of proximity to the extreme danger or injury or discomfort 
doesn't have to result in a completed tort and a claim by the primary victim. Because if in fact the child escaped unharmed, though they were in extreme danger but didn't suffer harm, they wouldn't have a claim, but it would still be possible for the secondary victim to do so. Uh, so I think those are five tests, plus another half, plus a bit more on <laughs> reasonable foreseeability. You can perhaps see why it's a complicated area. But um, Scarlett, what do you think are the important takeaways for uh, proximity? Well, I, I think that the issue is that, that proximity is, a, as you've explained, an overarching consideration for any tortious claim. And it, it ought to be in, in the forefront of any litigant's mind or the court's mind. But what seems to have happened when you stand back and consider the case law as a whole is that perhaps the, the, the five control mechanisms or the five elements have been used as a, a proxy for establishing this reasonable foreseeability or, or proximity in the Donahue and Stevenson sense, which is easily done given the, the facts which in effect will establish or, or not establish the five elements also have a huge bearing on whether or not proximity or foreseeability is made out. I mean, it's always they're so sort of melded together. You can quite see how uh, um, it doesn't get sort of sliced all the way down until you get to circumstances like these uh, where it is really vital to do so, isn't it? Yes, and it's important to have in our minds all the time when we're considering the analysis of Paul uh, on whether or not a subsequent horrific event should be recoverable. So we've said already that the three cases in, in Paul involved a gap in time between the alleged negligence and the horrific event. Uh, in each case, that was the, the death of a loved one. And in Paul, the, the court was asked to decide uh, whether a gap in time between those two events is, is permissible and, and whether or not those subsequent horrific events could be recovered. And as you, you'll know, Emily, that, that the parties put three different possibilities before the court uh, for deciding that point. Yep. So they came up with sort of three different, well, in those three facts that we gave you earlier, three different reasons as to why the divorcing between the moment of, of medical connection, so to speak, and the moment of death uh, weren't at the same time, but why they should still recover. There were three options before the court. The first was whether a horrific event is the has to be the damage completing the cause of action in negligence. So this is more typical in, in accident cases where the negligent event or accident really is the horrific event. So think about a car crash, for example. Uh, it's that event that completes the cause of action in negligence. The second option open to the court was was whether the when the horrific event is the first manifestation of damage to the primary victim. So that might be more likely in clinical negligence scenarios. So you have the clinical negligence occurring and then subsequently the primary victim might suffer damage which amounts to horrific event. So that's very much like the, the Paul case where you have alleged negligence in November 2012 and then some 14 months later you have a sort of shocking sudden heart attack. That would have been the, the first manifestation of damage to Mr. Paul. And then finally, the third option put before the court by the parties was that the horrific event can be recoverable whenever it occurs. So it doesn't need to be tied but to a primary victim's cause of action, whether it's completing a cause of action, whether it's the first manifestation of damage. It can occur sometime later, even if indeed there have been symptoms or, or signs between the original alleged negligence and the horrific event. So listeners will recall that that would be more applicable in the cases of Miss Palmier and Miss Purchase, where there were those uh, 
intermediate signs and, and symptoms that things weren't right and were perhaps getting worse. Yeah. So, of course, what you've got there is you've got with both uh, Palmyra and Purchase, you've got moments, as you say, of um, illness. You've got a recognised point in time when the medical practitioner failed to do something. So with um, um, Esme Palmyra, it was when the, uh, the first time when she went to see the, the, the consultant, they should have recognised the, the problem in January 2015 and didn't. Um, and with Miss Purchase, it was alleged that when she went to the 111 clinic um, um, out of hours, she should have been recognised as having pneumonia then. So at th- those moments, that's when you say that was the negligence by the defendant. They failed to take action or they you know, an act or a mission there. That was the completion of the talk because there was already harm happening. Uh, but um, that's the primary victim's cause of action. So the horrific event in both cases was tragically the 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 point at which they they collapsed and died that was what was witnessed by the secondary victim um, and that's when the cause of action for the secondary victim arises so th- those were the three propositions as as paraphrased by the master of the roles and given his judgment um but funnily enough when you look at the facts um the defendant says um you know you need to have a you need to have the event um, completing a cause of action um, at you know the moment of time, and and therefore none of the claims succeed because all of them, um, if you know, if tragically there had been an incident when, for example, with Miss Purchase at the out of hours clinic when they failed to recognise she had pneumonia, she then collapsed and died at that point. That would have been something that you would have had no difficulty in saying um, was a claim because, well, you might have had a difficulty, but it wouldn't have been on these lines. <laughs> um, that would be um, an argument of saying, well, you've got the negligence and the completion of the tort and the harm suffered at the same time. Because for in each case, the negligence and the damage occurred prior to death um, and the death was a shocking event, divorced in time, and so the claim would fail. Um, and the claimants in Paul said, as you say, B, um, because if there was no um, evidence before the horrific event and um, Palmer and Purchase argue C because there was some in, in evidence of illness uh, before you got there. So with that paradigm, I think it's probably important now to have a, a brief trot through the case law. We've said how important case law has been in these cases. And while it is personal injury case law, we know that we can import that. And indeed, the master of the roles did, did do just that. Um, so um, of all the cases, probably the most interesting, we've had a we look at Alcock, the most interesting in a way is Taylor and Novo. But um, do you want to crack through those for us, um, Scarlett, and give us a brief lesson, history lesson on secondary victim claims so we can carry that forward in our analysis? We have identified five key cases, which I'll, I'll just whittle through quickly. So the, the first you've already identified, Emily, which is McLaughlin and O'Brien in 1983, where uh, the mum goes to hospital to see her husband and, and children uh, covered in the leftovers from the accident. And she was held to have seen the immediate aftermath. And, and so she recovered in her secondary victim claim. Second, we have the Alcock-Hillsborough case, which of course we've already touched upon. It's just worth eliciting that in that case, claimants who identify bodies of their loved one in the mortuary some nine hours later, so to be contrasted with those who were at the stadium watching the events unfold, were held not to have witnessed either the event or its immediate aftermath. Third, we have a 2002 clinical negligence case, which is perhaps somewhat closer to to the facts we're looking at in Paul in that sense. And that's North Glamorgan NHS Trust and Walters. And the court held in that case, interestingly, that a 36-hour period between a baby's epileptic fit 
the misdiagnosis of that epileptic fit and its consequences and then ultimately the the turning off of the baby's life support machine was in effect one event it was a continuum of negligence or uh, the other phrase used by the court was an inexorable progression and so in that case despite that 36 hour period the claimant secondary victim claim succeeded now that's to be contrasted with our fourth case it's one you've already alluded to it's taylor and anovo in 2013 that wasn't a clinical negligence claim it was a workplace accident uh, the primary victim sustained relatively minor injuries at work but she went on to develop deep vein thrombosis three weeks later and, and she died as a result now her daughter witnessed her death and brought a secondary victim claim but the court disallowed it because they said the that the death of her mum was a consequence of the negligent event. It wasn't a continuum, as in Walters, and it wasn't a separate shocking event. It was a consequence. And then fifth and, and finally for our quick stop tour, we have another clinical negligence case. It's Liverpool Women's Hospital NHS Foundation Trust and Renane 2015. And that involved... Uh, not a death, but a husband seeing his wife deteriorate in hospital. She subsequently recovered. Uh, but he he described vividly seeing her looking like, like the Michelin man or, or blown up uh, and how, how shocking that was. Um, his claim wasn't successful. And the court said that he hadn't witnessed, unlike in some of the earlier cases, a, a seamless or a sudden appreciation of event. But instead, there were a series of events that were a, a gradual assault of, on his senses. So the court said, of course, they were unpleasant, but they weren't a, a sort of horrifying event judged objectively. And I mean, that might seem a bit hard to understand. And with all, always, there's nothing beats going back and curling up, reading all the case law yourself, but um, you may not have either the time or the inclination. And and in a way, one of the things they talked about in that case was um, that that effectively his wife was ill and she was in hospital and he saw sort of, you know, people rushing around and, and things being, you know, fluids and cannulas and all sorts of things. Um, but in a way, that was sort of what you expected. I mean, it wasn't the ideal outcome from the treatment she was having, uh, but it was sort of part of the process rather than a sudden shocking event. And that sort of distinction, that discussion was also carried on a little bit in the case of uh, Shorter and Surrey, which is um, uh, another clinical negligence instance when there was a discussion about whether or not and, and, and that it would not be appropriate for the determination of whether you suffered shock to be kind of based on your understanding of what you were seeing. So if you had medical knowledge or you had a medical understanding, you would be able to distinguish um, in a way that a lay person wouldn't. And that was felt to be too fine a distinction for a claim. In that, in that case, the claimant saw her sister deteriorating in hospital. And because she herself worked in neurointensive care, she knew her symptoms were not indicative of a good outcome. Um, and so that obviously um, meant she was heightened, heightened in her upset. And the court disagreed, saying it had to be a more objective standard. Your um, if it wasn't going to be shocking to your ordinary punter on the upstairs of the uh, Clapham omnibus, it wasn't going to be. Um, it wasn't going to work. Uh, so, so again, that that sense of you know what is and isn't shocking is is important. So, 
that's the background. Those are the three arguments put forward by the defendants, the A, B, well, no, sorry, by the parties, defendant and, and claimant A, B and C that we set out for you earlier. You've had the facts, you've had the case law. What was the outcome? Drum roll, please. <laughs> uh, what did the Master of the Rolls decide? And so the Master of the Rolls concluded that the, the five Alcock elements apply to clinical negligence cases, as, as we've already said, and that the when presented with those three options that we talked through earlier, the, the court said that the, the the correct option ought to be the, the third option, that the secondary victim's claim doesn't need to be tied to the primary victim's claim. There doesn't need to, to be a primary victim claim. So it's not it's nonsensical to, to tie it to the event which completes a cause of action or is the first manifestation of damage. But ultimately, the Court of Appeals said, to paraphrase that it's it's its hands were tied because because of the earlier case of Taylor and Anova that we've discussed, um, the court said that's binding authority for the proposition that no claim can be brought in respect of psychiatric injury, which is caused by a separate horrific event removed in time from the original negligence accident or first horrific event. So what, what the court's saying is it's nonsensical to tie it to a an earlier event or primary victim's claim, but we have Taylor and Anova, which says there can't be a gap in time and, and, and we're bound by that. Okay, so what you've got is it doesn't really matter, so to speak, whether the primary victim has got a completed action or not, because of course you can have a secondary victim claim with the primary victim not even being harmed. But what you can't have is the horrific event being separate yes, from their negligence. Yes, it's the gap in time that, that was problematic for the court. And yeah. th- that was the master of the role's judgment in a nutshell. But we also have the short concurring judgment of Lord Justice Underhill. And Lord Justice Underhill looked, took a step back and, and looked in a bit more detail at the Taylor and Anova judgment of Lord Dyson and said that the, the sort of the nub of that judgment or or what he phrased as the decisive feature was that put simply that there has been an interval of time between the defendant's breach of duty and the shocking event. And it doesn't particularly matter whether it's, it's, it's three weeks or more. It, it's the interval, it's the gap in time that is problematic unless you're in the sort of Walter's continuum of negligence that's the same shocking event territory, any any interval is problematic. Right. So if you've got a shocking event unfolding, even if it's unfolding for 36 hours, as it is in Walters, or for 20 minutes, as it is in McLaughlin, um, or whatever that may be, that's fine. But once you've got a break between um, the um, interval of time between the breach of duty, whether or not it caused injury, and the shocking event, then you don't have a claim. So one of the things that is interesting is the arguments we gave as A and B, which were that the horrific event uh, must be either the first instance of damage or the first manifestation of hitherto unseen damage. So that was the defendant and and Paul. The, the Court of Appeal said, no, that that's not... Um, really helpful. Um, as the Master Rolls said, um, these nuanced approaches are distinctions without real differences. Um, because, of course, um, if you accepted, you know, either they have to be together or they can be um, a first manifestation, they can be apart in certain circumstances, that would affect where liability might fall 
given certain facts and circumstances. Uh, but they'd be wrong in terms of legal principle because you, you know, you'd end up with hugely factual disputes as to when damage was caused or whether it was caused by negligence um, occasioned to the primary victim or when damage first manifested itself um, to the primary victim, etc., etc. But as a matter of rules and minds, there's nothing in the cases to suggest that that is a distinction to be drawn. Um, and indeed, it becomes more illogical when you remember or understand that actual injury or damage to the primary victim isn't even required. Um, that was made clear by Lord Oliver and is repeated um, um, throughout Alcock and, and indeed repeated at the beginning of, of um, the test that we gave you. So if you don't even need <laughs> damage to a primary victim, it cannot be that the secondary victim's claim is dependent on when that damage arises, whether it's at the same time or after or later. Um, and the five elements the five tests um, address legal proximity between the secondary victim claimant and the defendant. And they concern whether the defendant ought, in the eyes of the law, to be liable for the psychiatric injury to the secondary defendant. Um, and the legal liability owed to the primary victim is, is, is irrelevant. Now, of course, it's not irrelevant in terms of the factual circumstances, because if you didn't have something happening to the primary victim or being perceived as happening to the primary victim, you couldn't have a secondary victim claim. But you cannot tie the claim of the secondary victim to the completion or delayed completion of a tort to the primary victim, because you might not even have one. Okay, so that's one of the very important distinctions. And that deals with effectively argument A and B. They're both wrong, say the Court of Appeal. Sorry, guys. Because the case isn't isn't governed by the primary claimant, but by the secondary victim. So how does this work, Scarlett? Can anyone tell us what's going to happen? Well, in how a nutshell, you apply the five elements. As you say, you, you don't tie the secondary victim's claim to the primary victim claim. But crucially, in the three cases that are before the Court of Appeal, you're looking at has there been a break in time? And in all three instances, there has been. However, you, you ask, Emily, can anyone tell us how this is going to work? Well, yeah. as, as users, um, <laughs> sorry, as listeners of this podcast probably already know, uh, there is a, a sort of big hint in the judgments that, that this may not be the final word on the matter. Yeah, so what does he say? What does well, the master, master of the roles, roles uh, is clearly not very happy that his, his hands are, are tied in this way. And he said that if he were to, to start with a clean sheet rather than having this sort of iterative application of, of case law that we necessarily see in our common law system, he said, I, I can, if I were starting with a clean sheet, I can quite see why secondary victims in these cases ought to be seen to be sufficiently proximate to the defendants to be allowed to recover damages for their psychiatric injury. Since, however, this court is bound by Novo, it's for the Supreme Court to decide whether to depart from the law as stated by Lord Dyson in that case. And he went on to say that subject to hearing further argument, he would be inclined to, to grant permission to appeal to the Supreme Court. Well, that's an exciting foretaste of things to come, perhaps. Um, Lord Justice Underhill also agreed. Um, his strong provisional view was that the issues ought to go to the Supreme Court. So we could take that as a bit of a hint uh, that this matter might be going to the Supreme Court. And indeed, that um, if our lawyer listeners hold their breath, they may yet have a secondary victim part two, the follow-up, uh, when we get there. So in conclusion, um, we have a way forward for the claims that are present now. I don't know whether or not it is 
uh, as clear as mud or even clearer. Uh, but for the time being, the um, in a way, the important takeaway is the primary victim is not the be-all and end-all. It's the factual nexus, but not the determinant for whether or not there's a secondary victim claim. Go back to the Alcock control mechanisms, which are now uh, tests, um, and look carefully at the way that that is applied. However, uh, you may be um, more inclined to seek a stay and wait and see what happens in the court uh, in the Supreme Court. Um, but I think that's uh, all we can say today. I know what your final the reflections only other are, Scarlett. Thing that I would add, Emily, is is that as we've already hinted at, there's there's, there's clearly some hints in the judgment that the, the judges aren't happy with the restriction of of Taylor and A Novo, and and so if the, if the Supreme Court feel similarly, it might very well be the case that that a larger scope of claims for secondary victim psychiatric illness might be recoverable in future. I think that's a a very astute observation. On which happy note, why don't we say farewell, adieu, not goodbye, until the next episode of Civil Lawcast. Thanks ever so much for joining me for a chat today, Scarlett, and I hope that our listeners have found it useful. See you soon. Bye. Thanks for listening. At 39 Essex Chambers, we cover a vast array of practice areas and sectors. You can find out more about our expertise and our barristers at 39essex.com, where you can also see our extensive catalogue of articles, podcasts and webinars.